So we are continuing this morning in our sermon series in the book of Revelation. And by way of reminder, in the passage that I just read for you, Revelation 8.13 through to chapter 9 and verse 11, we're in the middle of the seven trumpets cycle of visions, which like all the other cycles comprises the time period between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. And each of these cycles is analogous to a replay, if you're watching sports, for example. One replay maybe is in slow motion, and another replay is from an overhead camera angle looking down, and another replay is at field level or court level or whatever. Each replay, so to speak, focuses in on and highlights one aspect of what is being replayed. And the replay angle of the seven trumpets is the judgment of the wicked. That's what's being emphasized and focused on in the seven trumpets section. As opposed, for example, to the general suffering of mankind in the seals narrative and the persecution of the saints toward the end of the seals narrative. That's what was particularly in view, was the way that all people are going to suffer and the way we in particular are going to suffer. In the trumpets narrative, it moves away from just sort of you should expect that we're going to suffer too. You should expect that God is judging the wicked all the way along, partially and in measure, and then ultimately in the end, decisively and ultimately. So by way of review, the first four trumpets introduce thematic correspondence to the plagues of Egypt. There's hail, there's the water turning to blood, there's darkness, and so on and so forth. And this allusion back to the plagues narrative, where else have we seen these kinds of things? Hail and darkness and water turning to blood. This allusion, which is not explicit in the first four trumpets, is, however, further strengthened by the statement in chapter 9 and verse 20 at the sixth seal, that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. And so there's this, even the same word used to to strengthen this association that we're recalling here the imagery of plagues. This thematic correspondence and this linguistic correspondence, the use of the same imagery and the use even of the same language indicates to us that we ought to think of the trumpets here in a way that is similar to the way that we think about the plague narrative way back in Exodus when God's people were in Egypt and God was sending plagues upon Egypt. There will be a heightening intensity of the trumpets as there was a heightening intensity of the plagues. There will be increasing hostility of the Egyptians toward the Israelites, so to speak. As the plague narrative went on, the Israelites became, unsurprisingly, less and less popular in Egypt. So it will be. As the trumpets blow, there is increasing hostility towards the people of God as the unbelievers come increasingly under the heavy hand of God's judgment. But in the end, there will be a victory of Yahweh over Pharaoh and over the gods of Egypt, so to speak, and God's people will be delivered. That's what's going on in this seven trumpets narrative, broadly speaking. Now with that in mind, let's focus in on the fifth trumpet, which shows us that one horrific 
judgment of God, one plague, if you will, is that he gives people over to demonic torment. Yes, you heard that right. We're talking about demons this morning. If you're visiting with us, you should know that we are the kind of church that is so primitive and backwards in our thinking that we actually believe in evil spirits. Because yes, we believe that the Bible actually gives us an ad accurate metaphysical paradigm and framework for understanding reality. See, there are people that scoff about preaching about God, of course, but many will tolerate that they come to a church and hear preaching about God. That's acceptable. But as soon as a preacher starts talking about demons and evil spirits, that's a bridge too far for some folks. There is a segment of the audience who inwardly, or perhaps even outwardly, starts rolling their eyes once you start talking about evil spirits and demons. But consider the atrocities which have been committed throughout human history. Certainly the human heart is evil. Desperately wicked, in fact, the Bible calls it. But moreover, isn't it plausible what the Scripture teaches, that we ought to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12 Is that not plausible to you? <laughs> to believe that underneath and behind things like the Holocaust or the transatlantic slave trade are greater evils and additional evils even to those that reside in the desperately wicked human heart. Is it so implausible to believe that there really are spiritual forces of evil working with and underneath and behind even the evil things that humans do one to another? Skeptic, how does your secularism account for one of the most educated societies ever known to mankind? Mid-20th century Germany to descend into the horrors of ethnic cleansing, physical and psychological torture connected with the concentration camps, grotesque human experimentation. Won't education and enlightenment rid us of primitive ideas like God and evil spirits? And won't, won't education and enlightenment make mankind more civilized and respectable? After all, isn't it the hokey, outdated vestiges of Dark Ages religion that keeps us talking of things like sin and depravity and demons and whatnot and keeps us from progressing into a blissful utopian state? Isn't religion the problem? Right? Skeptic, how much more plausible to realize and accept what the Bible says that the human heart is desperately wicked and 
furthermore, that in and behind and underneath even human atrocities that we are very much responsible for and culpable for ourselves, there are also spiritual forces of evil or demons. Let us consider this character in our narrative this morning called the angel of the bottomless pit in Revelation 9-11, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Now, Abaddon and Apollyon both mean destruction or destroyer, albeit obviously in different languages. But they're equivalent terms. And this being is presented to us as a star fallen from heaven to earth who was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He is also called the king of the locusts who come up from the shaft, who I will argue momentarily are demons. So we have the king of demons himself, who was a star that fell from heaven to earth. Let's examine a couple of Old Testament passages that might shed some light on this character. First, consider Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15. You can turn there if you like, but I'm about to read it for you. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So here is a star who arrogantly wanted to make himself like God, but ended up falling from heaven and going down into a pit. Do you see the thematic correspondence here between Isaiah 14 and this character called Abaddon or Apollyon in Revelation 9? You should. But who is the reference? In Isaiah 14, it is the king of Babylon who is described in those few verses that I just read to you. So what is Isaiah teaching us? He's teaching us that behind and in and underneath the king of Babylon's arrogance was a demonic inspiration and aspiration to make himself like God as Satan once tried to do and was cast out of heaven. And what is Revelation teaching us then? Drawing very clearly on this imagery of the king of Babylon from Isaiah 14. Is it teaching us that the literal king of Babylon who reigned at the time of Isaiah's writing is somehow going to make a reappearance on the scene of history at some point? No. But rather, he's teaching us that there is another Babylon. That there is a contemporary Babylon between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. Behind which, and underneath which, and in which, there is still that ancient foe. 
seeking to work us woe. Abaddon and Apollyon, who was a star cast down from heaven to the pit. Consider now Ezekiel 28, verses 12 to 17. Again, you can turn there if you like, but I'm going to read it. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, which was another nation, right? Babylon, Tyre. Say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were a signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond. Beryl, onyx, and jasper. Sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Listen, and he's talking to the king of Tyre. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Hmm. Well, who is God talking to? Is it a cherub who was in heaven, who was arrogant and fell? Or is it the king of Tyre? Or is it both? The way that Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Can God at one and the same time talk to someone at two levels and in talking to someone at two levels talk to two people? Yes. Get behind me, Satan was a rebuke not only to Peter, but a rebuke to Satan. Not a rebuke only to Satan, but a rebuke to Peter. So what we see here is that there's this same character who is in and behind and underneath the king of Babylon, who is also in and beneath and around and working with the king of Tyre, who also appears many years after the king of Babylon is rotting in his grave and after the king of Tyre is rotting in his grave and here he is again in Revelation chapter 9, this cherub, which is the plural, by the way, or pardon me, which is the singular, by the way, of the plural cherubim. This is an arrogant angel who tried to exalt himself to the level of God who was who existed before the king of Babylon who existed before the king of Tyre who was in in Eden way back he's not an eternal being on the day you were created he says and yet he predates these guys but when the king of Tyre becomes arrogant and exalts himself guess who's at work in and underneath and behind it When the king of Babylon exalts himself, guess who's at work in and underneath it and behind it? And here he is, this same cherub, this star fallen from heaven. Here he is again in Revelation chapter 9. We have parallel stories here 
the king of Babylon paralleling with the king of Tyre, and then these Old Testament references paralleling with what's going on in Revelation chapter 9. Now in Luke 10, 17 to 20, well, 17 really, it's a longer section, but in 17 we have Jesus saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In Revelation 12 and verse 7, we read that war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This is all the same character. Apollyon, Abaddon. I'm not suggesting that the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre literally was Satan, but I am suggesting that he was empowered by, influenced by, and perhaps even possessed by Satan. The star fallen from heaven. The king of the locusts. The angel of the bottomless pit. This is all the same character. Satan. What the fifth trumpet in Revelation is teaching us, therefore, is that at some point between Jesus' first coming and His second coming, there is going to be a giving of the key of the shaft to the bottomless pit. And Satan will let out his locust hordes. And there will be a short time, indicated by the language of five months in Revelation 9 and verse 5. There will be a short time in which Satan and his locust horde will torment people such that they seek death and do not find it. They long to die, but death will flee from them, according to Revelation 9 and verse 6. Let me show you three things about this demonic torment before we shift gears and finally get to some good news. So buckle in for a few more minutes of this heavy and grave teaching. First, the reason for this demonic torment. In Joel chapter 1 and verse 6, we read of a nation coming up against Judah with lion's teeth, corresponding with the description of the locust's teeth in Revelation. And lo and behold, the nation personified in Joel as locusts. So you have locusts with lion's teeth in Joel coming against the people of Judah. This imagery is all over the book of Joel if you want to go back on your own time and read it through and think about it. Why do the locusts come in Joel? In the book of Joel, it's the people of Judah's unbelief and ungodliness and the locusts come upon them as a judgment, these locusts with lion's teeth. Again, you can go read it on your own time to verify that assertion. What Revelation is doing is drawing on the imagery of an army of locusts with lion's teeth coming as judgment upon the unbelief and ungodliness of the people who dwell on earth. Who was it, interestingly, 
who came as locusts with lion's teeth upon the people of Judah in Joel's day. If you know your Old Testament history, you can make a good guess. Babylon. And who had their helm? Lo and behold, the king of Babylon. Hmm, you mean the day star fallen from heaven, cast down to the pit, according to Isaiah 14? See, in Joel's day, God brought the Babylonians, driven and compelled by demonic influence, in arrogance against the people of Judah many years prior. What Revelation is teaching us, drawing primarily from the imagery of Joel, which is the clearest place that you're going to find an army of locusts coming against people in judgment. What Revelation is teaching us, drawing primarily upon the imagery of Joel, is that just as there was a day of the Lord back then with a lowercase d, there is coming a day of the Lord with an uppercase d, in which God will loose a demonic army in judgment upon the wicked. A Babylonian army, if you will, with the king of Babylon at the helm, if you will. Which leads me, secondly, to the manner of this demonic torment. Notice that it is indeed God who ultimately lets loose this demonic army upon the wicked. Who holds the key to the bottomless pit? Well, back in chapter 1 and verse 18, it is Jesus who holds the keys to death and Hades. It is God's angel, God's angel, who has a key to lock Satan in the bottomless pit in Revelation chapter 20. So notice that Satan must be given the key in Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, to let his demonic army out. Now it is Satan who lets his army out, but just notice that he has to be given a key first to do it. In a more ultimate sense then that this is Satan's doing, this is God's doing. As he sovereignly works over and through this demonic torment to bring about his intended purpose of judging the wicked. This is very much in some sense like Job chapters 1 and 2, in which Satan asks for and is granted permission to harm Job. On the one hand, it was Satan who harmed Job, wasn't it? And yet, on the other hand, it was God's sovereign plan. The battle against spiritual forces of evil is not a battle between equals. Satan is like a dog on a leash who can only do what is permitted. He can only run as far as the leash extends itself. He is given the key to the bottomless pit in Revelation chapter 9. But only for a short time is he allowed to do what he wants to do. And the story ends with the key back in God's hand and Satan in the lake of fire. This short period is described as five months which we're not obligated to take literally, could be 
a symbolic number as there are many symbolic numbers in Revelation. Maybe even drawing on the time period of the natural dry season and the life cycle of locusts. So just as when it gets hot here in Barbados, we say, yeah, this time of year, but soon it'll cool off again. And there are places in the world where you say, well, the locusts are here now, but they'll be gone soon. Might be drawing on that. Might be five months. It's not a point of orthodoxy here. But getting overly fixated, as I've been trying to stress all along, getting overly fixated on all the details here is not the proper way to read Revelation. And whatever the five months mean, it's clear that at least they mean a relatively short time. Five months is not, you know, for example, a thousand years, right? Or anything like that. Next, notice that the pain described in Revelation 9 is described in physical terms primarily, but there is also clearly a psychological component. People will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Revelation 9.6 Beale puts it well when he says that people want to die, but on the other hand, they're afraid to kill themselves. They're in the hands of powers of darkness who make the long night scarier, but the thought of the afterlife scarier still. Deuteronomy 28 describes curses which will follow Israel in the case of disobedience. And it says, you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And at evening you shall say, if only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel. And the sights that your eyes shall see. However physically painful the demonic torment to be unleashed may or may not be. The picture here certainly includes psychological suffering. So it's really immaterial, specifically what is being described, whether this is demonic torment that comes in the form of an eschatological, Hitler-esque figure whose armies physically torment people, or whether it's symbolic for the general suffering and torment of a world given over to demonic ideologies and priorities, genocides and transgender surgeries, which are regretted profoundly later, pedophilia, totalitarianism and police brutality and so on and so forth. The point is that at some point between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, there is a short period of time in which Satan is given the key to the bottomless pit and demonic torment ensues at an unprecedented level. Worse than the judgments of the first four trumpets. Remember what we read at the end of chapter 8. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. 
there's an indication that you ain't seen nothing yet. Whatever's happened in the first four trumpets, there is a heightening, an intensification coming here. And what we read about next in the fifth trumpet is this demonic horde coming upon the earth. Let's consider now, thirdly, the victims of this demonic torment. Revelation 9.4 describes the victims as, quote, only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. End quote. Alluding back to the marking or the sealing of God's people in chapter 7. So God's people will be spared this particular and intense, horrific judgment of unprecedented demonic torment. As it was in the days of the plagues in Egypt, so shall it be at the fifth trumpet. In the words of Exodus 11, 6 and 7, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. We're approaching the good news here. Before we do though, does this mean that God's people can never be harassed or tormented by demons? No, it doesn't. We can never be possessed by demons for... As we know from Romans 8, the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. And can Satan and the Spirit dwell together? No. Of course not. But Satan and his locust horde can certainly make our lives more difficult and cause various sufferings of various sorts. Just consider Job as a prime example, whom I alluded to just a few moments ago. Satan was able to touch his circumstances and his body. And in Job 4, verses 13 to 21, we read a chilling account of the psychological suffering that Job underwent caused by demons. Listen here. Amidst thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, trembling, which made all my bones shake. The spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. In other words, Job, God doesn't have your best interests at heart. Job, you have no hope. Right? doesn't say it in this passage, but 
Was Job wrestling against flesh and blood when his wife said, curse God and die? Or were there spiritual forces of evil? Listen, it may be with you as it was with Job, in the sense that Satan and his locust horde may cause you suffering in various ways as you go through this life. But take heart that there are limitations put upon this by God Himself. And God will never give you over to demons the way that He gives over the rest of the world. That's the main point I'm trying to make to you this morning from this passage. It tells us that one of the horrific judgments that God sends upon this world is giving this world over to demons. But God will never give you, believer, entirely over to demons the way that He gives the rest of the world over. If you've trusted in Christ Jesus, you may be sure that you belong to Him and have been sealed and that this opening of the shaft of the bottomless pit will indeed be horrific for the rest of the world. And as we've seen in the, the seals narrative, there's persecution for us, even though we're spared from being given over to demons. It's not like we're not going to suffer. And as we're going to go on and read in chapter 10 and 11, there's persecution for us as a result of the unbelieving world. And we're still going to be battling against spiritual forces of evil but you may be sure that you will not be given over to demons the way that the rest of the world is given over to demons in this fifth trumpet says here that those who are given over are only only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads now some people say well the reason that we're not going to be harmed by this is we're going to be taken out of the world before but the problem is we're still in the world after right so this is going to be a sparing not by pulling us out of the world ahead of time but this is going to be a sparing somehow the way there was a sparing in Egypt where there was a great cry in the land of Egypt and yet not a dog growled against the people of Israel I don't know the details here how is God going to entirely give the world over to demons but it'll be only those who don't have the mark of God on their foreheads. I don't know. I don't know exactly what that looks like, what that means. Because we're still going to experience persecution and we're still going to battle against spiritual forces of evil. But this passage very clearly tells us that the woe of the fifth trumpet is not for me. If you're a believer, it's not for you. It plainly tells us here that the woe of the fifth trumpet is only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And that's a comfort. That's a comfort to me. That God says, look, the fifth trumpet is about to blow, but it's only for those who don't have the seal. If you belong to Christ Jesus, you may be sure that this fifth trumpet will be horrific for the rest of the world, but God will be to you a mighty fortress. As the Scripture says, the Lord knows those who are His. And as Jesus said, this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing 
of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. It is a terrifying thing to consider the giving of authority to demons in the fifth trumpet. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced any sort of demonic experiences or activity in life. Some of you maybe not. Some of you maybe so. Those who have experienced such things understand that it is chilling and terrifying. And the thought of being given over to demons for five months, whatever that means, is a very scary thought. So as the angel said, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. But how blessed it is to be known unto God. To have entrusted yourself entirely to Christ Jesus. To belong to Him, as the Catechism says, in life and in death. And to know that you will never be handed over to the whims of Satan and his demons. And well, those five months rage around us to know that like the waves of the sea stopping at the sandy shore, Satan's torment specified in that fifth trumpet shall go only so far and shall not reach you. You are ultimately safe in Christ Jesus. As the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 3 and verse 6, I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people or dare I say locusts, who have set themselves against me all around. 